Welcome to episode 215 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. My birthday was three weeks ago and I'm still celebrating. No parties with friends or anything wild like that. I am still cashing in my birthday freebies. Over the last few years, I've steadily increased the number of birthday freebies I signed up for. Last year, when I moved to a new neighborhood, I went out of my way to sign up for birthday freebies at nearby restaurants. All these clear intentions led to new opportunities, but I've not always been good at taking advantage of birthday freebie opportunities in the past. There have been years where I only managed to get my free Starbucks, but didn't get around to claiming anything else. I stepped up my game this year and did some advanced planning to map out when I'd follow through. On my birthday, I got my free Starbucks and a free takeout meal from Not Your Average Joe's. A few days later, I picked up a burrito at Moe's and the next day, six bagels at Rosenfeld's. Intention led to opportunity, but I still need to do planning to be sure I followed through. This reminds me of an international association of exhibitions and events stat that 76% of people say that networking is a top driver for why they chose to attend an event. That means they set the intention, which led to networking opportunities. But in reality, I'd be surprised if more than 25% felt they followed through on those opportunities. That would be like missing out on eating a free burrito because you didn't make a plan to pick it up. And that is not cool. Your challenge this week, think about the intentions you've been setting and what opportunities they have led to. Are you satisfied with how well you're taking advantage of these opportunities? What would you need to do to increase the likelihood that you follow through? What are you losing out on if you don't follow through? Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest believes that not all innovation will be obvious and your business must be ready before it becomes your disruption. He is the founder and CEO of Travelocity.com, which he led from a team of six to a $3 billion public company. He retired from Travelocity when it was taken private and then helped found Kayak.com, where he was chairman for seven years until it was sold to Priceline for $1.8 billion. His career path has established him as a thought leader on innovation and disruption in our increasingly digital world. As a speaker, author, venture capitalist, and board member, he shares the tools and techniques he's developed to keep up with rapid changes. He has presented in over 25 countries to 300 plus companies. His programs on innovation, leadership, and customer relationships leave attendees with inspired ideas and concrete action items to implement in their companies. He is the author of two books, On Innovation, Turning on Innovation in Your Culture, Teams, and Organization, and Disruption Off, the Technological Disruption Coming for Your Company and What to Do About It. Please join me in welcoming Terry Jones. Hey, it's great to be here, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Well, Terry, thanks for joining us from your place in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. Uh, As you know, this is a, a show about leadership and building strong connections. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you have the skills to lead? Well, you know, in my book on innovation, I talk about the qualities of leadership. Somebody who's network, 
uh, a coach. They're inspiring. They're broad-minded. They're fearless. They're powerful in the organization, but they're empathetic and and they're a listener. And I, I look back on that today and I thought, you know, the one thing that isn't there that maybe is most important because it's the first part of being a leader is they know how to create a powerful team. Um, and getting the right people together uh, to be able to lead is it may be the most critical thing. And, and sometimes you're given a team, right? And, and you get promoted or you get sent over there and then, and then you have to find out, well, what skills do they have and how can I help them use those skills to most effect? And particularly, how can they help me in the areas where I'm weak? Um, and sometimes you get to make a team, which is really exciting. Um, and, and we did that at Kayak and we can talk more about how that happened. So it, it uh, I think putting that team together or teasing the skills out of the people is, is makes you the most powerful leader. Um, I think I, I got to know that I was a leader. Um, I went to a camp in Canada for uh, almost 12 years, a canoeing camp. And it had other stuff, but I liked the canoeing part and really tough trips to the wilderness. And we, we would go out for, you know, 40 days and very, very tough. And I got to be a trip leader. And, you know, I'm 18 years old and I'm leading a bunch of 12-year-olds. Um, and 12-year-olds are difficult at best, but also being being a leader and taking canoe trips, you know, it, it, it really, uh, I grew up real fast doing that. I was expected to do a lot. I was responsible for their lives. Um, we had to have fun and, and we had to make the goal. So I, I, I enjoyed doing that a lot. I mean, I, you know, obviously when I started my business career, I was an individual contributor in the beginning, wasn't a manager. But uh, I think that experience, because it, it was so tough in the woods um, and leading 12-year-olds, it's just nuts because older kids respect you and younger kids do what they're told and 12-year-olds are impossible, um, was, was really uh, a great background and learning experience for me. Man, it, it brings up such a visual. Um, but before I go there, I wanted to say like in your, in your definition, I love this idea of teasing out skills that like people have something within them and part of being a leader is that you sort of tease out of, the, of them the possibilities and then you sort of curate a team and bring people together. And that, you know, empathy is a piece of this and all those other great like attributes are a piece of it. But if you don't know how to sort of bring together a team, then who are you leading? Like that, that's a really good sort of visual there. That, that, that's what it works, to, you know, a, a great conductor does with an orchestra. That's know, right. To, because they don't really need you up there waving your hands. Right. <laughs> they, they probably can do it. Um, it. It's about, you know, how do I make the best out of the timpani guy or the, mm. you know, the flautist? That's great. So uh, going back to this canoe trip, though, um, how old were you when you first started going on these trips? I was nine. Um, nine. And went away for eight weeks. And, and a horrible thing happened. My brother was my first counselor. Nothing worse than having your brother actually have the sort of legal power over you. Um, but I loved it. And he, you know, he, he really helped me. And uh, I went back and back and, and loved it. Almost bought the place when I was 21. Um, raised the money. It was for sale. I thought that would be my career. Unfortunately, the people who owned it, it were a bunch of dads who wanted to be paid. It was a Canadian camp. They wanted to be paid in the U.S. under the table in cash to avoid taxes in Canada. 
And I told him I thought I probably would end my career as a tax evader, but I didn't want to begin my career as a tax evader. So I I went off and had a very different career. But actually, <clears throat> goes around, comes around. I'm now chairman of the board of a very large boys and girls camp up in Minnesota. And we just acquired uh, that camp, which had gone defunct. So Whoa. Uh, now, I just got uh, chills. It, Terry, I just yeah, got chills when you said cool. that. <laughs> we raised the money to uh, from all the old campers and we donated it to the camp. So now we have three facilities and we we deal with about 500 kids in the woods every summer. Not this summer, obviously. And then about another 500 underprivileged kids in Cincinnati uh, during the winter. We get them out in the woods and get them on lakes and rivers. And I think it's just terrific to get kids outdoors. So I'm, I'm all in and I've been chairman there for a couple of years. That's wonderful. I love, I love the, how, how, what goes around comes around story like arc there. So uh, I'm so curious, even before you're 18, when you're this nine-year-old, I have to say that even though your brother was going to be there and you being your, your team leader and such, it's still a big, a big yes for a kid to say yes to that kind of, I mean, eight weeks to be out, you know, away from family. Were you the, were you adventurous? Was it not, was it the outdoors? Was it the camaraderie with your friends? Were you, were you a follower? Like what kind of kid were you when you're on the playground back in the day? Well, I was a sports dork. So I was, you know, I was always overweight and never got picked. And so I wasn't good at that, but I was always curious. Uh, my mom, I credit my mom for that. She took me to the library all the time. She read to me and my dad was a madman. He was in advertising. So we got like 35 different magazines at home and I read all of them from successful farming to wedding planning to whatever. And, and then my dad was kind of a maker. He was a ham radio operator. So I helped him build radios we built go-karts, bicycles, we fixed skis, we did all kinds of stuff. So I like that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and it was an outdoor world then. We all played outdoors until it got dark, and um, I enjoyed that. And But camp was sort of my brother had gone, and my parents said, well, one of the things you do in the summer is go to camp, so you're going to camp. So I said, okay, I'm going to camp. Um, I didn't know any better, and and I just fell in love with the place. Um, and it was it was a... What we find now, you know, as chairman of this organization is the men and young men and women who go to these camps become leaders. Um, It's almost like the military. They're forged in an experience of teams, uh, unshared experience of slogging through mud and paddling canoes and going down rapids and, you know, turning over and all that stuff. It forges them into great leaders. And we're actually in a project right now to go back and interview alumni to say, how much did this experience shape you? I think that experience shaped me a lot in my career, uh, particularly, you know, with hardships and changes. Um, Perhaps I was a little better equipped than others who didn't have that experience. It's also hard to imagine, Terry, what life would be like if that's, if your career had ended up you running that camp, which sounds like it would have been very, very fulfilling on a number of levels. But look, all that you ended up doing um, yeah, and still got to give back and, and be part I of that world. Got to come back, so you know, this still, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, born again. So, what? Where? When you were going to school, and particularly, um, so you went you went to college after high school. Yeah. yeah. So, what did you think you were going to be then? If if this I had no this clue. Camp thing you know, wasn't I, happening. I didn't understand all these people who said you know when they were twelve they were going to be a doctor. I mean, I I had no idea, um, and I majored in history. Um, and I, I really liked history and, and political science. And I thought maybe when I come out, I'll go in the foreign service. Um, you know, I was very interested in that and, and perhaps the diplomatic service. Uh, but 
it was the middle of the Vietnam War and I got drafted. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to travel, but not the way I wanted. Um, <clears throat> at, at, I, I went in for the draft and, and was rejected uh, because of my back. Uh, so I, I didn't know what I was going to do because I was pretty sure I was going to war. My college, one of my college roommates, dad was a pilot for Transworld Airlines. He had a free pass to go anywhere. And he said, when I go to grad school, I lose that. So I'm going around the world. So two of us said, we'll go too. So he spent a year going around the world. Uh, you could buy a round the world ticket for 1200 bucks back then. And uh, we spent a year, uh, you know, I learned so much about, you know, how wonderful the U.S. is, but also how wonderful the rest of the world is. It gave me new eyes to look at the U.S., good and bad. Um, I learned a lot about adversity and difficulty and uh, plugging through because we were traveling on five bucks a day. And um, when I came back, uh, I went to my dad and I said, I want to go in the travel business. And he was quite disappointed. He thought I would should be something better than a travel agent. Uh, I paid for a good education, but I went to travel school at night and learned how to write tickets and got a job in a travel agency um, and started as a receptionist, um, you know, learning how to type invoices and do visas and all that kind of stuff. And back then, of course, you made all the reservations over the phone. I actually made my first reservation by telegram. That's how old I am. We actually had a telegraph machine. Um, and six months in, my manager said, let's go do a startup. So we both quit. Uh, we, had a, we had a sugar daddy guy behind us who wanted to help us out, gave us some money. And we opened an agency doing business to the USSR. Um, at that time, Nixon and Brezhnev were buddies trying to have better relationships between the countries. And there were only four agencies in the United States who were permitted by the Soviet government to do business, we wanted to be the fifth. And long, longer story we can tell here, I was the one at 21 who had to go to Russia and negotiate the deal. Um, so I, I went and uh, they made me cool my heels for two weeks, but eventually we got the deal. And uh, over five years, we became the 50th largest travel company in the US. So that was my first startup. All right, I just have to say you at 21, you're very impressive at 21. At 21 is also when you're raising money to try to buy this camp. At 21, after like six months answering phones and learning how to like type things in and you know make orders happen, you get pulled to go join this guy on his big dream. And you know, shortly after, you're the one who sent off to USSR to negotiate something. What prepared you for that moment? Because that seems like such a gift, but for a lot of people, they may have missed that gift because maybe they wouldn't want to take a lowly job as a receptionist. Maybe they wouldn't give it their all. Maybe they wouldn't say yes to an unknown. Like, what prepared you for that? You know, I think yeah. it might go back to the camp and, and you know, the time I spent where you were just on your own and you had to lead the trip and you had to do it. I, I knew, you know, you had to start at the bottom, whatever business you were going to be in. And the bottom was being a receptionist. The first day, the guy said, type an invoice. I said, what's that? He said, it's a bill. I said, oh, I know bills. My parents pay those. Okay, <laughs> I can figure out what a bill is. Um, and crazily enough, the guy I worked for, my manager, was a Korean American. And we left to do this deal. Well, Koreans were not allowed to go to the Soviet Union, but he'd run the Soviet desk at our agency. And he'd always told the Soviets he was Hawaiian. <laughs> and, and they didn't know. But when he had came time for him to go, they had to send me. 
And I, they said, you know, well, where's Charles? And I said, well, he's not exactly Hawaiian. Um, <laughs> and so that's, and that, they made them furious. And that's, you know, why I had to be there for two weeks negotiating. And I was, I was scared to death. You know, it was Russia in the Cold War. But, uh, you know, eventually it worked and, and uh, business boomed and we became a corporate travel agency. And we got, one of the things that happened at that time was the airlines started putting computers in travel agents. So we could make reservations. And we also bought a mini computer to write the tickets and, and produce the reports for corporations on where people were going. I got fascinated by that. And after five years of, of this startup, my boss started bringing his relatives into the business. And I was like, eh, I don't know where this is going to go. I jumped to the computer company um, and went to work for my second startup. So your story is reminding me of Howard Putnam. Are you familiar with Howard? I know Howard. Yeah. So I thought, I thought that was the case, uh, similar era and work, worked in the airline nearby actually. Yeah. Oh, that's even funny. Oh, right. He's in Nevada. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed him for my show and I was at a conference where his name was mentioned from stage and someone said a story about a baggage handler who went on to become the CEO of an airline. And I, my head, like what? Like I I jerked up to be like, wait, that's a story. And so similar to you, like, you know, you starting out as a receptionist in a, you know, (laughs) travel agency, almost a temp job, like the kind of job, you know, that you don't expect people to stick around for long. And you didn't actually, you went on to go, you know, part of all these startups. Um, That that, that trajectory is interesting. And the idea that you sort of kept looking for new opportunities For, for Howard, he moved from baggage handler to ticket sales because it was warmer inside. (laughs) <laughs> the weather, the weather was more, uh, you know, controlled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he was sort of like, okay, I guess I can do that. Uh, then he had to take a desk or something. So yeah, so it's just sort of interesting um, that that your introduction to the computer side of this kind of came through this five years of being. It was right at the cusp of when airlines were starting to like bring computers to the travel world. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So. In, in- you wanted to, you, did you go to this travel company? Sorry, did you go to the computer company because you wanted to understand that better? Like, did you know it was going to go tied back to, to travel? No, I, 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 well, yeah, it was a travel. We sold to travel agents. It was just more interesting to me at the time. And I, I learned a lot about computing and I thought this is going to be cool. So I jumped and they had me in sales in the beginning. And then uh, they moved me to their headquarters down in Florida. I was in Illinois um, and they put me in charge of product. And so I was in charge of product design um, and I knew the travel business, so I knew what they wanted. So that was really interesting to me to turn, you know, the customer need into a software product. And six months in, uh, that company was sold to American Airlines. And suddenly I was part of this big organization. The only guy among 50,000 employees who had a beard, uh, they actually put that in my contract that I could keep my beard I, <laughs> and um, back then. And uh, everybody's clean shaven and American. And so I, I, they left us alone for a couple of years uh, doing our thing. And eventually they moved us to Dallas and into the corporate headquarters. So now I had to wear a suit. I was part of the corporate entity and started climbing the ladder at American Airlines. Yeah. I wonder if the beard was also helpful when you were going to visit USSR at the time. Oh, da, they thought I was very much Orthodox priest, perhaps. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and you fell in love with the with the whole travel agency 
uh, well, I guess the travel industry experience. But yeah, when did I you? Did. It was I liked it, and I and, think also you know, startups. I could travel around and yeah, and startups. Startup was it was really fun to be in a startup, and I'd done two of them then. Um, you know, we sold the second one, and an American bought it, and um, but then I was in the big company, and that was totally different to be yeah. inside American Airlines. I had to learn about budgeting. I had to learn about you know traditional HR processes, and you know I became a manager and then a director and then an assistant VP and managing more people all the time. So that was, uh, and, and they were great at it. And they sent me to training and, uh, you know, I, I, so I had training, but I also had a, an airline is like an army. It has a rigid set of processes. So you learn a lot about how to run something that's big and complicated. It sounds like a cultural difference, though, from what you were used to. Oh, yeah. Was that like, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah? What was that like to make that well, shift? That was, was a little shocking, but we were kind of the Mavericks anyway. I was in the Saber division, and we were selling computers to travel agents, which for a time was more profitable than the airline business. Um, the computer division was making tons of money, and we we got sued for antitrust uh, because we listed all the flights with American First and. Uh, government said we couldn't do that. We said it was alphabetical order and that argument failed. <laughs> so um, we were suddenly able to charge for the system because we, we grabbed so much real estate. We had so many travel agents. Uh, we were a billion dollar business and very profitable. Um, so we had a little bit more of the maverick in us. Um, but after that, I, I, was, I was doing product for Sabre, same job I'd had before. I was an assistant VP. And then they made me a VP of programming. And there were three of us. I had 500 assembly language programmers working for me. And they, they said, we're going to send you over there. I said, I don't know anything about that. I've never programmed. I, they said, oh, you'll be fine. Um, and we can come back to that story because two years after that, they said, now we're going to make you vice president of computer operations. 2,000 people, $500 million budget. And, you know, uptime, running 40 airlines in this computer. So I said, I don't want to do that. I oh, you'll be fine. Just, you know, and they did that to people. They would push you. Uh, if they saw something in you, they would tease it out of you and make you go do it. Just like you said earlier, what leadership is, yeah. right? Yeah. So when did you make the decision to leave the safety of this huge conglomerate, right? Like this huge company and decide to do a startup again? Well, actually, what you don't know is Travelocity actually started inside American Airlines. So what happened was we had this little product. I had run it for a time uh, called Easy Saber. It was on AOL and CompuServe. You could make a reservation, but you couldn't buy a ticket. It sent your reservation to your selected travel agent. So it's like a referral system. And that had been running for about eight years. And finally, the travel agents woke up and said, hey, you're selling bullets to the enemy. This online thing, you got to shut it off. And Bob Crandall, the chairman, said, no, we won't do that. Jones, he used to be a travel agent. We'll give it to him. He's over in IT. We'll hide it over there. So they gave it to me. And I thought it was pretty cool. And eventually I said, I want to go do that instead of being, at the time, I was chief information officer of, of Sabre. So I was CIO over the whole thing. And, you know, I had several thousand people. And they said, well, there are only 10 people there. You're crazy. I said, no, I think it'll be big. And so I went and we immediately put it on the internet, which had just been deregulated. And um, it, it grew like a weed in the spring. It was terrific, but it was inside the airline. 
So uh, my book on innovation is a lot about entrepreneurship and what it's like to create something inside a big company. You don't have to worry about money. Uh, you have to worry about people who want to kill it <laughs> and how, you know, and and what you can escape from. I had to escape from purchasing, you know, and escape from advertising and know anything. And it was it, it was a really interesting time to take it to the point where finally we took it public and spun it out uh, because for a lot of reasons, we, we, we spun it out. And then eventually uh, um, Sabre, the Sabre decided to buy it back. They thought it's too important and we can't control it as a public company because it wasn't their public company. So they bought it back. And when they did that, I quit because I thought they're going to totally screw this up. They're going to put all the corporate overhead back on top of it and wreck it, which they did. They, they bought it back for a billion two and eventually sold it to Expedia for 200 million. So they, they, they wrecked it because they didn't understand how to run a startup. Um, but right, it was a fun ride. It was really cool. I got, <laughs> I got to build my own team. I, you know, we built our own buildings. We went all over the world. We grew this company. We were really the first online company. We were competing with Microsoft, who you probably don't know, owned Expedia. Uh, they started Expedia. And so that was a, sort of a titanic battle. Um, That's fascinating that we you, ha- you have. So you have a... Uh, an airline and you have a computer company and they're both kind of tackling this hybrid from different angles. And actually Bill, uh, Bill wanted to do it with us. So we had had meetings with Bill Gates and, and Crandall and myself and others. And they said, you know, we'll, you know, mainframes and we know user interface PCs, let's do it together. But this was porcupines making love. I mean, it was just not going to happen. It was very difficult. Um, so, uh, we we couldn't agree, and uh, therefore we each did it on our own, and uh, that that ended up uh, in a, in a great competition. But you know, you you sent me a question. I'm I'm mindful of our time here about management challenges, um, or what was it? What was a big challenge? And I'm going to go back to that because I was thinking about it when you wrote me that when, when I got sent over to manage the uh, programming department, these 500 uh, programmers, I thought, what can I give them? You know, how, how can I help them? And I had six directors reporting to me and they all were upset because they all thought they should have the job. And why did they bring out this, this jerk from marketing uh, to come over? And at the time, America was just entering into a quality management program. Quality was very important, came from Deming and the Japanese, and we were trying to get more quality, but not many people had applied it to software. And so we were all supposed to do something. The other VPs weren't doing anything. I jumped on it, read everything I could about it, and got them engaged because they were programming in assembly language, which is like stone tools, right? They had to because this old mainframe. And Nobody really talked about the future or what we do better. So we engaged around quality, about code reviews and sussing out errors and how to get better and Kaizen and Ichikawa diagrams and all that quality stuff. And suddenly I was helping them do something new and it was really working and their customers liked them better. So, you know, when, when you jump into something like that, you have to find a way to engage with these people who, who, don't like you. I mean, I mean, they liked me as a human, but they really didn't like the fact I was there. And that happened to me again when I went to run the computer operations division. Um, and I had to use a similar technique. 
So I think that that's a really important learning for a leader when you get tossed into something is, you know, not only how do I suss out their skills, but how do we weld it together? We, we formed a reading club. We read a book a month. Uh, they'd never done that. And, and, you know, about whether from customer relationships to improving software. Uh, and that helped us, you know, get to know each other, but in a way you don't in a performance review or in the day to day. So anyway, I thought it that's was great. Good. No, I really appreciate that. And, um, the the idea that when you when you're thrown into that kind of challenge, it's it's about what value can you bring this team they weren't expecting that they'll grow to appreciate and respect, um, even though they they'll be like, well, I wish I had the well, he's doing a pretty good job though. I, you know, I, I wanted the role, but you know, wow, you know, it's really kind of bringing something to this that I wouldn't have thought to, and exactly. you, know, you have to you have to bring you can't just be there to just like do the thing that they've always done because they know how to do that. Like they're expert. They're more expert in that than you are. And, and, you know, more and more, and I'm on a big board of CIOs, CIOs are coming from marketing, you know, because digital experience is all about selling. So more and more these guys are moving over and IT is going like, well, you don't know about the triple inverted Framus chip or whatever. And you should no, I don't care about it either. <laughs> you know, what I care yeah, about is yeah. welding an organization that can make great software to deal with our customers. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I only recently came across the Kaizen approach because I've been talking to people about continuous improvement and someone yeah. along all my reading, I was like, oh, cool. This is the thing I've been doing. Like, <laughs> yeah, no. I, love, I love finding a field of study. It's, yeah. it's fascinating stuff and, and the Japanese perfected it and, and you know, it really yeah. does work. And in software, we've always had these cowboys who write code and they say it's art and, you know, there's art in it, but, you know, there's a lot of process. Yeah. So I, I want to shift a little bit to just talking about your network because you know a lot of people. More people know you, but you know a lot of people and you've had this amazing career. Thank you so much for sort of sharing that trajectory that you've had and a lot of a lot of saying yes, even when you didn't really know what you were saying yes to seems to be a theme for your for your <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Guess I'm gonna have to live up to this one. Yeah. So thinking about all the people you've met and um, you know, you've got your sort of innermost circle, then you've got sort of the second and third layers or tiers out the people that you maybe you see annually at a conference or uh, you work with five years ago or 25 years ago, but you like these people. You just don't have a reason to be working with them right now. How do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections, the people that are not as you know, closely in? Like, do you have any habits or philosophies or, or practices that you do to sort of maintain those connections? Well, you know, what I find is, um, you know, I'm 72 and uh, I, I get, so I get a lot of inbound stuff where people say, can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? Um, can you join my board? Can you be an advisor? Can you be the wise guru, whatever? Uh, and what I end up doing a lot is, is I'm sort of a maven. You know, I'm connecting people to people. I say, well, I don't know a lot about that, but I know a guy who knows a guy who knows something about that. And so I use uh, my LinkedIn a lot to go out and say, who the heck was that guy who knows about this, who could really help them here? Or what kind of person do they need? Um, and so I, I, I've been advising a startup from Finland and I don't know how they found me. And, you know, they really needed somebody to break in, in sales, kind of a great bag carrier 
who knew all the top guys in travel. And I said, well, you know, that's John. Let me call him and let him be an advisor to you. And all I did was make the connection, you know, let him go run with it. And what you find is if you do that, then people will do that for you, you know. And and so, you know, I got a drawer full of worthless stock of companies I've helped that died. But I also, you know, have some winners. And so if you just keep making that connection and and you asked me another question in pre-conference here, about, you know, what I would say to my 25-year-old self, um, I didn't do enough networking when I was 25. So uh, when I was running Travelocity, I didn't know about YPO, Young President's Organization. Now, as you know, I've been a speaker for 15 years now. I've spoken at YPO. It's an amazing organization, and there are other ones like it, where you get peer help. Because, you know, I was running a startup, but I didn't have any startup friends, and I didn't have VCs who are really helpful. I just had, you know, these corporate suits who were not helpful. Um, so whether it's YPO, whether it's Rotary, whether it's, you know, I never went to the travel agent associations. I didn't do any of that stuff. I would do more of that now. My, my wife is big in Rotary. Now I live in a small town, so Rotary is big, but you get a lot of friends who can help you. Um, so I think that kind of networking early, whatever it is, a Toastmasters, I don't care. Just go do it. Um, yeah, I had to do, I hated public speaking and, and I had to take it in college and you could get out of it by making one speech. So I made one speech and I was terrified and that was it. And then when I got to American Airlines, I had to do a lot of it and I was terrified. And I asked my boss, who was a really good speaker, I said, how do you, how'd you get good? Said, do it a lot. Go do women's clubs, the Flower Center, Rotary, you name it. Go out and do it until you get good. So I did. Um and then American, I was speaking to thousands of people, you know, and, and I had to, I had to get, get good at it. So, you know, it's about getting out and doing it. And that's what networking is about is, is doing it. Um, yeah. And, it's about and getting think, in those reps. Yeah. And I think, you know, even, even uh, coming to your zoom event, um, this is really interesting during the pandemic and you throw us in the river of other people uh, in these Zoom rooms. And it's awesome. And I made some interesting contacts um, that I wouldn't have met before. And in fact, in talking to more and more people about virtual meetings, that is really powerful uh, in corporations because you're throwing together marketing and sales and manufacturing and people don't normally wouldn't hang together and just force them to be together. Um, and it's easy and cheap to do and it produces interesting results. So uh, that's sort of the new networking. It does, it does, um, it's true what you're saying that these, uh, these times have sort of forced us to find ways to do this all online. But even when we go back to being able to be in offices again and being able to go to conferences again, I think we've now all adopted some level of interest in, oh, there's a way to now do this virtually. And, you know, regional meetings happen because you want people to connect, but why do you have to wait for them to happen? You could be doing them anyway. Like, and why does it have know, to be regional? Uh, you know, that's why is it regional? Thing. Yeah. Um, I think two things that are going to happen in the meeting business. And I've been doing a lot of interviews about this stuff. There won't be a meeting in the future that isn't hybrid uh, of any size. They'll all be hybrid. And two, what's fascinating is you read about some of these big tech conferences they're having twice as many people sign up as show up but twice as many people show up as they ever had before. And way more of them are international because they don't have to fly there and they can afford it. So 
trade shows are getting more traffic uh, than they got before. Uh, and, you know, dealer shows and, and trade associations are, are able to disseminate information in new ways. So I think it's very powerful. Uh, a lot of it is garbage and not done well. And, and that's why, you know, I think I'm doing well as a virtual speaker because I've worked very hard on it. You're doing well because you teach people how to do it and, and you're a pro. Um, so as the, as the cream comes to the top, uh, people will learn how to do it better. Uh, and, and then I think it'll just be embedded as, as part of what we do in meeting going forward. Well, I, I know you don't know where you stumbled across my No More Bad Zoom virtual happy hours, but I'm so glad that you did. And you've been come, coming back as a regular. And then yeah. I, I wanted to mention again, uh, folks may not know that you came and presented about your home studio setup, which is elaborate is sort of not quite, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> can't quite yeah. underscore enough how elaborate this, this setup is. But it gave people a sense of, you know, not incremental progress, but like, if you are ready to step this up, if, if this is your industry, this is your profession, this is what a professional speaker needs to be thinking about. You know, I'm focusing more on like the technical skill of the technique of moving, right. you know, your slides and using the Zoom and online facilitation. And you sort of really focus on not buying technology just to buy it, but how do you use it well? How do you use it effectively? I've seen a lot of people buying get you know gizmos but not knowing how to use them not even oh, yeah. taking them out of the box <laughs> well i think look the competition in the virtual world is television so i think i have to be as good as tv and if you look at cnn or fox you've got you're doing an interview with somebody who doesn't agree with you there's a graphic up there with a main point there's a lower third graphic talking about something else the background is moving there's a crawl on the bottom with a bunch of other stuff in case you get bored <laughs> you know so i'm doing interviews and polling and video um, and I'm on camera and I'm off camera and I'm trying to think of what else can I do to make this more like a really excellent live TV show. Um, And and the other thing, I I was talking with somebody yesterday about a meeting. You know, I normally, when I speak, I'll say, what happens after me? I got a thousand people in the ballroom. They say, oh, well, you know, Bob will get up and talk about lunch and the buses. I said, no, don't do that. Have Bob do that before or don't even say that because they're all hungry and they'll find it. I want them to leave the meeting talking about me and and not me, but what I said. And I'll leave them on a high note and you'll get more return on meeting. So they agree to that. Now, in a virtual meeting, you get no feedback. There's no clapping. And you can go right into Q&A and it's fine. And actually, the questions are better because they flow in during the speech and they're moderated, which is very cool. And I talked to a guy yesterday who said, you know, one thing we're doing is after the speaker leaves, we're leaving that chat room open and people talk about those ideas for another 30 minutes until we shut it off, which is wonderful. So there are some really interesting things coming out about the technique uh, that I think can improve meetings overall. I think it's a it's going to be interesting as we all test different things and then we have to figure out a way to curate best practices yeah. and disseminate those ideas more broadly, which is why I keep showing up at other people's events to see what they're doing and vice versa. Oh, I, I still remember time. my my background's events. And so I remember going to uh, an event for another organization. They had Gobos and I'd never seen a Gobo, like the lighted logo that's like lit and like it's displayed on a wall or on a floor. Oh, and, yeah, you know, yeah. you just sort of walk past it. But I was like, what is this? Because it, again, it, it sort of elevated the experience. So like it, 
And I, I found out what it was and I quickly got three for our organization. <laughs> you right. know, it was a little game of a little upmanship, like, but I think it's like that as we, you know, travel and around these travel in quotes to these different uh, online experiences, picking up the best that is um, and learning from it and seeing, seeing what we can incorporate. So yeah, I have a friend, Dan Burris, who's a very accomplished speaker and a futurist. And before virtual, he was doing holographic appearances and he'd found out and he, he was, I think he bought the gear, but that really prepared yeah. him. They can't do a virtual holograph because that would be like a double positive or something, but um, he's really good. And he'd shake your hand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and he even interviewed himself as a hologram. He was live on stage. I've seen him. I've seen this actually on the main stage at the National Spears Association annual event influence. I've seen him do his thing. It's very clever in person. Yes. It's really, Dan's a great guy. And, but, you know, we're all breaking new snow here. You know, we're out trying. And I think, you know, the most important thing is to convince meeting planners who have yet to be convinced that this stuff works. They're not sure. But, you know, I have the reviews and you have the reviews to say it does. So, you know, for me, I mean, I've had so many different careers. You know, I've been a consultant, a writer, an author. I served on 17 boards. Uh, That's been a whole interesting experience. And, you know, travel agent and then an IT person. Um, And and so, you know, that's another part of, of Leadership to me is the ability to to switch gears and go use what you've learned and go do something else um, that's equally fun. But you can you can learn you know now running running a nonprofit. I've, I've been chairman of two nonprofits, totally different than running a business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more consensus based. Meetings take ten times longer. <laughs> Very hard, um, but it's a great purpose. So that's okay. So as we are wrapping up here, I have one of my favorite questions, Terry, which is, uh, I know we're going to stay connected, but let's say we're, we're having a moment a year from now and we're reflecting on all of the success you've had in the prior 12 months. What are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Well, I, I think I'm looking forward to uh, this, this whole virtual speaking thing and see if I can make it work um, with, with a team of people that I'm putting together. Um, to approach meetings in a new way and see if we can be, you know, the virtual meeting a team that shows the world how it's done. Um, because I, I, I just think it's so powerful and it doesn't take six months and it doesn't have to cost a jillion dollars. And yes, I want the travel business to come back and hotels to be successful. And it's not going to be, it's never all one thing. I mean, look, travel is the biggest part of e-commerce, but half of travel is still done over the phone. Um, so, you know, it, it, the newspapers are still here. Now, the Telegraph finally went away. But, you know, um, it takes a long time for technology to change things. So it's not going to be overnight. Um, and personal relationships are still important. But I've gotten to know people over Zoom that are now good friends. I can't meet them yet. I want to. Uh, but that's okay. We're, we're doing fine. So I, I think if we can, you know, take this whole virtual thing to the next level uh, teach people how to do it well um, and, and to really present in a new way and not hold up their graphics on a three by five card in front of their camera and stuff. Um, then I, I, you know, that'd be fun. Uh, to me, that would be great success. And, you know, I, I have my first grandchild. So to get to know her, I can't get to know her right now would also be good. I, I got to see her, but that was for an hour. So, uh, ah. but, you know, it, it, but I'm not, I'm not retiring. I mean, 
people said, why did I do my last startup at 70? I did an AI startup. I got a call from Ginny Rometty, the chairman of IBM. And she said, will you come teach IBM Watson about travel? So I did. And that led to a company. And you know, people said, do you have to do another startup? I said, no, I'm, I'm on Medicare. I don't have to do another startup. <laughs> I want to do another startup. And that one blew up. It didn't work. We were too early. Um, but that's okay. You know, that happens. And, and, and as I say, I had a $15 million education on what not to do. So I learned again, <laughs> you know, um, because you can, well, you can I, still have a lot of experience and screw it up. I can't wait to celebrate all these things with you. Um, I, it feels exciting to me. I, I'm 46 and have no intentions of retiring. And the more people I talk to in their 70s and 80s who are like, still giving back so much and, and giving so much value and taking everything they've learned and experienced and sharing it. It's like, that's who I want to continue to always be and grow into. So it's, it's awesome for me to see that and um, be collaborating with folks like you who have so much to have they've experienced and can learn from both of us. But um, I want to know how people can find you and follow your work. Well, uh, two books, okay, uh, on innovation and disruption off. They're both on Amazon, and they're in paperback, and they're in audio. And they're unusual books. Uh, they each have like 72 page chap- three-page chapters. So they're very snackable. They're built for snackable media. You can read them front to back or back to front. Um, and then my website is tbjones.com. T is in Tom, B is in boy. Uh, tbjones.com. Lots of videos there um, where you can look at my presentations and learn about my thinking on disruption and innovation. Fantastic. We will have all of those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Robbie. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Terry. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 215. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. As a virtual event design consultant, my clients include California WIC, Feed America, California Notary Symposium, an ATD chapter, a BNI chapter, and the National At Home Dad Network. What this eclectic group has in common is a willingness to invest in hiring professional for strategy, training, and event production. I help my clients reimagine their in person events utilizing all the opportunities available through virtual and digital technology. Rather than trying to replicate the in person event, we create a powerful virtual experience. I can help with the virtual event design strategy, emceeing, producing, including managing the tech, chat, breakout rooms, training and supporting presenters, and refer to other professionals as needed. Are you planning a 100 to 500 person online event? We should talk. Email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Terry, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. And we'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. 
us probing questions. They get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.